Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. For tonight's episode, I've got something a little bit different. I'm going to be doing a Patreon preview episode. For those of you that are considering supporting the show on Patreon, this will be a chance to see what kind of bonus digital content I'm providing and will be providing more of in the future, which are non-Alaska cases that I find intriguing that are often not very well known or not very well covered on other podcasts. Along with the bonus digital content, several of the levels give you the option of requesting a Patreon episode, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys want to hear. Plus, everybody gets goodies in the mail from me, and all of my patrons are going to be getting some Valentine's Day goodies, likely a lot of candy because... We all need candy in our lives. So without further ado, let's get into tonight's Patreon preview episode, The Last Stand of Lori and Dan. Wherever you live, you've most likely had the experience of watching a one-person rampage unfold live on the news whether in your region or another. It's always terrifying to think that someone was so angry at the world that they decided to kill as many people as possible in one violent day. It makes you wonder about the events in their life that brought them to that dark decision. In the last few decades, these types of crimes have become more prevalent, and unfortunately, they've become more creative as well. A machine gun from a hotel window overlooking a crowded concert? A truck driven into a crowd of people just enjoying their holiday? A gun at the mall, at a school, at a church, on the street, and pointed out your own window? But no matter the location or the method, there's one thing that 99.9% of these types of crimes have in common and that's that they're perpetuated by an angry man. Even the angriest of women aren't drawn to this type of violence. In general, a female murderer is much more likely to gravitate towards more passive forms of killing, such as poison or fire, than to shoot someone. There are many reasons for this trend, one being that aggression is more socially acceptable and sometimes even rewarded for males. Another reason is that men tend to express their anger outwardly at those around them, while women tend to internalize these feelings and often end up hating and harming oneself instead. The motivations also differ. While men go on killing rampages for a huge variety of reasons, when it comes to women, their crimes are much more likely than men to be directed at family members or other people that they know. In an FBI study which analyzed 160 mass shootings between 2000 and 2013, only six of these crimes were perpetuated by women. So while these types of incidents are rare, they do happen on occasion. In this episode, I will be discussing one such case. We'll be doing a deep dive into the story of one woman's downward spiral and her bizarre attempt at mass murder. 
and what led her to that point. It's an intriguing story, and it's a very rare crime, both for the perpetrator, her MO, and the intended victims. I'm frankly pretty surprised that I've never really heard it discussed much in true crime circles. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it might be just because she didn't result in having as many victims as she intended with her plan. And also likely because it happened 30 years ago before the rise of the 24-hour news channel and the internet spreading this kind of news everywhere. If this story happened today, I know that it would be a massive story. Bori Dan was born Bori Ann Wasserman in Chicago on October 18, 1957. Her family was very stereotypical for America at the time. She had a father with a great job, a stay-at-home mother, and one older brother. As a child, she had a couple of friends, but she could also be extremely introverted and very shy, and she had incredibly poor self-esteem and self-worth. She was somewhat awkward-looking as a child and never seemed to feel like she fit in with her family, especially since her older brother had done incredibly well academically. She felt like a disappointing second child who wasn't particularly great at anything. And in her upwardly mobile family, who were striving to eventually live the wealthy lifestyle, she just couldn't keep up. There was something about her that made her just come across as kind of bland and easily forgettable to her peers. But despite her appearance and her quiet nature, troubled waters roiled beneath the surface. In her younger years, she had been involved in some classes for children with learning disabilities and emotional issues. And those that knew her best would later say that her parents didn't seem to truly care much about her, just as long as she had the appearance of fitting in with the other kids. Over the years, her parents actually got her plastic surgery a few times, first to make her ears stick out less, and later she got a nose job. The end result was that she was quite pretty as a teenager, which greatly boosted her confidence, and she would even start dating boys. Though tellingly, she never seemed to make any female friends, and she seemed to be very ethically flexible and would think nothing of cheating in school and shoplifting at the mall. She also seemed to be very narcissistic and didn't really seem to take others' feelings into account, and she would often cheat on her boyfriends with other guys and often not really care about any of them for real. Despite this, she still had a desperate need to be wanted by men and to always have one around. While most found her to be pretty dull, she could demonstrate surprising levels of anger and even hate for perceived slights. If she even thought that you might have wronged her at some point, you would be dead to her, and she would hate you for the rest of both of your lives. Because of her bad grades in school, she barely got into college, and she then spent her first year in a local college 
working hard to get her grades up so she could transfer to Arizona State. After a few years there, she finally made her first female friend, which was a girl named Pearl. And she revealed to her that she didn't actually care about college. She was just there to find a husband, which is the old joke about going to college for the MRS degree, which wasn't actually that strange of a way of thinking, even in the 80s. She did find a serious boyfriend that was pre-med, but she acted so obsessive and possessive over him that over time she completely drove him away. Other than men and shopping, she seemed to have few interests. She also didn't seem to really know herself well at all. Despite her pretty poor social skills, she was thinking about becoming a teacher. And she also had no real ability to kind of stick with anything. And she was constantly dropping classes, dropping out of college, and switching between colleges and majors. And by 23, she had ended up back in Chicago. And there, she would finally meet a guy she could really get serious with. 25-year-old Russell Dan was also from a well-to-do Chicago family. And he was rapidly climbing the ranks as a salesman his family's insurance business. He was gregarious, athletic, definitely had his pick of women when he met Lori. He was impressed by her, or at least the version that she presented to him, which was made up of a lot of lies. She claimed that she was a graduate student working on a research project, but in all reality, she never had finished her bachelor's degree. His friends and family members were almost immediately off-put by her upon meeting her. They had absolutely no idea how their class clown friend, Russell, had ended up falling for such a dull woman who seemed to have absolutely no interest other than Russell. He didn't really seem to mind, though. And nine months after they met, they got engaged. Because she had basically no friends... They opted to have a very small wedding when they married in the fall of 1982. She now had the exact type of guy that she'd always wanted, but she was still unable to be happy. Not long after the two got married and moved in together, Russell began to notice aspects of Lori's personality that he had never seen before. Since childhood, she had done certain ritualistic behaviors associated with OCD, and it seemed like these had gotten worse since she had moved in with Russell. She seemed to be really having a lot of stress at trying to maintain the marriage, and she also seemed incapable of maintaining a job and was constantly getting fired, either for being unable to do even basic tasks or for just flying off the handle at the slightest provocation. And it really seemed to take her an extreme amount of effort to do even the bare minimum that most adults do daily, such as putting on clean iron clothes, washing her hair, and keeping the house tidy. She would clean the house like a child by throwing everything in a closet rather than actually putting it away correctly. She also was unable or unwilling to adhere to basic social norms, such as saying please and thank you. Russell's family was quick, quickly growing to either outright loathe her 
or at the very least was confused by her. It's obvious from the viewpoint of someone in 2019 that she likely had some sort of mental health issue that had never really been addressed properly. But even though the 80s don't seem like that long ago, at least to me, it was such a different time for mental health issues and how people with them were treated. One of Lori's main issues was she could not handle any sort of competition for Russell's attention from other women, even from his own relatives. She could be incredibly disdainful towards his family members or even totally critical. It seemed like she only knew how to bring herself up by pulling others down. Less than two years in, their relationship was in dire straits. And Lori agreed to see a therapist for a very short time, but she was disappointed that the doctor couldn't just magically fix her problems with one or two appointments. The doctor was very worried about her, though. He could see that she was incredibly troubled, and he wanted her to keep coming in to see him and to take a tranquilizer, which they often used as an antipsychotic. And while it did seem to help her, she refused to keep seeing the doctor and thus was unable to continue on the medication. Her husband continued to be incredibly patient with her, despite the fact that he was working really long days at his job and coming home to a chaotic house. She began to put belongings in strange places and sometimes would just throw trash all over the floor rather than in the trash can. She would also throw all of her clean and dirty laundry into a pile and just wear whatever she pulled out. After a while, she began just wearing sweatpants all day and sometimes would just lay in bed until Russell got home from work. Through it all, she seemed completely unaware of her own downward spiral until Russell finally got fed up and told her that she needed to get back into therapy or their marriage was bound to fall apart. She did go back to therapy, but at that point she had fallen so far down that spiral that it didn't make a difference, and after just three years of marriage, Russell said that he wanted a divorce. The divorce proceedings started out somewhat amicably, but rapidly descended into turmoil as Lori became incredibly angry. She began by prank calling all of his family and friends and hanging up on them repeatedly. She told all sorts of malicious lies about him to everyone that knew them. She told anyone that would listen that she wanted to make him suffer. She even accused him of mental cruelty when he had filed for divorce. During the divorce, Russell began to get an idea of what had made Lori this way. He repeatedly told her father that she really needed professional help and that he just wasn't able to help her anymore. And Lori's parents seemed completely unbothered, even when Russell told them of many of the more bizarre details of his life with her. They were more interested in their current transition towards retirement in Florida. Lori continued to try to make Russell's life miserable. She was aiming to get as much money out of him in the divorce settlement as possible, 
despite the fact that her own family was extremely wealthy. She began calling the cops on him, first claiming that he had assaulted her, and later tried to make it look like he had broken into her parents' house. All of these things were easily disproven. Through it all, her parents would continuously believe her claims, no matter how outrageous they became. She later broke into his house and threatened him. Since they were still legally married, law enforcement was not taking this seriously, and neither were her parents. When she next up easily bought a gun, law enforcement was finally a bit concerned, but her family still didn't care. She next decided to desperately track down her former college boyfriend. She found him and claimed that she'd had a child by him. He was already married by then, and it threw his life out of whack quite a bit until he talked to Lori a few more times and realized that she was just lying to screw his life up. She would later call the hospital where he was a resident and claim that he had raped her, but nothing came of it. However, he and his wife would now be added to her list of people to make harassing phone calls to. Russell had moved into a place of his own, and Lori was still staying in the house that they had once shared. He was having a very hard time trying to get her to agree to sell the house, and since it was considered half hers, he was stuck in limbo as Lori made the house increasingly disgusting with her bizarre habits. Meanwhile, Russell's family members had gotten so sick of the constant hang-up phone calls that they had devices set up to trace incoming phone calls. And when they eventually proved that the calls were coming from the house where Lori lived, they were ecstatic. They wanted to bring her to justice because by now many of them were beginning to be truly afraid of her. However, law enforcement didn't think it was a good case since Russell still technically had access to that house, so there's no way of proving it was just Lori doing the phone calls. And while she continued to harass Russell's family and friends, she also was constantly adding more people onto her list of people to bother, including her own friends and former friends, and even people she hadn't spoken to since high school. She also called the police and told them that Russell had broken into the house and assaulted her. But her story was totally beyond belief, and when she went to the hospital, they could tell that she had zero injuries. Eventually, after she told her story to a local prosecutor, he declined to press charges because of how outlandish her story sounded and the complete lack of evidence. Unfazed, she then called the police claiming that Russell had broken in and left a Molotov cocktail in the house with a lit fuse. Again, nothing came of this, but these continuous accusations were really affecting Russell's life and well-being, because for every single accusation, he would have to go to the police station and answer questions, even for the most bizarre of claims. Finally, after a long struggle, in April 1987, their divorce was finalized. Not long afterward, she decided to sublet half of a suite in a building right near Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Despite the fact that she was nearly 30, she couldn't quite let go of the college dream. This would turn out to be a huge mistake for the person that subletted to her. She would 
quickly became known in the building for her bizarre behavior, which included riding up and down in the elevator for hours, changing the channel on the communal TV back and forth obsessively, and wandering around the building at all hours, wearing rubber gloves, and basically just seeming totally disconnected from reality. She also developed a very strange habit of hoarding raw meat and hiding it in various places throughout her room and the building. Around this time, she also started urinating on the carpet whenever she felt like it. She had totally stopped paying rent shortly after moving in, and the guy who had rented the place to her was in New York City for the summer, so he wasn't able to confront her personally. But both he and the building staff were desperate for her to get out of there, especially once they realized that she had somehow acquired a master key for the building and was going into other units. When they contacted her father and told him everything she had been doing, he seemed unsurprised, but he did agree to help her move out once they threatened pressing charges against her. After she finally moved out of that building, the staff saw that she had destroyed the bed and carpet by urinating on both many, many times. Once Lori was back with her parents, she began working regularly as a babysitter. She created a fake name for herself, and the families that she worked for were none the wiser. She was able to work for some of them for quite a while, but others would drop her quickly because of her odd behavior and occasional tendency to steal household items. She also began the fun habit of cutting up their furniture with a knife. Every time a family would drop her as a babysitter, they too would be added to her list of people to prank call. In the fall of 1987, her parents were able to convince her to try treatment again. She moved to Madison, Wisconsin to work with a doctor who was known for a specialty in OCD. After a short time, she was taking large doses of a variety of medications. Despite the fact that her mental health issues seemed far more intense than the singular diagnosis of OCD, that's all she was being treated for. During this time period, she purchased a second gun. While in Madison for treatment, she moved into a dorm, pretended she was a student, and said that she was much younger than she really was. She exhibited many of the same behaviors as she had in her sublet. She also began voraciously eating due to side effects of the medication and was rapidly gaining weight. During this time, her prank phone calls became extremely ominous. While previously she had just done repeated hang-up calls, she now began whispering threats to whomever answered, such as, you're going to die. She again tracked down her college ex-boyfriend and called his family, telling them she would kill them and their child. Her anger was ratcheting up dramatically. In the spring, she decided to quit her regular therapy appointments, although she did keep taking the medicine. Her psychiatrist began researching whether he could have her involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. But when he spoke to Lori's father, Norm, he denied that his daughter was violent or threatening to other people or to herself. This is despite the fact that he knew about all of the accusations against her. He also knew that she owned two guns and did not reveal this to the doctor. The family of Lori's college ex, Steve, was getting really 
terrified of her. They had moved a few times over the years, and she always managed to track down their unlisted phone numbers, and she was now threatening their lives. Steve was able to get the FBI involved through a friend with connections, and they set up a recording device to get proof of the threatening calls. The FBI agent involved also found out about all of the accusations from Russell Dan's family and friends, and he was able to put everyone in contact with each other so they could compare notes. They were finally starting to feel as though their worries were being taken seriously. Along with the guns, she had somehow, during this time period, been able to successfully steal a large quantity of arsenic from a campus chemistry lab which would later factor in to her master plan of destruction. By mid-May, the FBI was getting ready to indict Lori in relation to her threatening phone calls. By now, the FBI talked to quite a few people who had been on the receiving end of these calls, and many of them were actually scared of Lori and what she might do to them. They tracked Lori down to her dorm room in Madison, but by the time a local agent arrived to question her, she had already moved out, as had everyone else because the semester was over. She had gone back to her parents' house in Winnetka, a village of around 12,000 people that is just north of Chicago. The community is part of the North Shore, a group of affluent small communities that are all north of Chicago and bordering Lake Michigan. It was not the type of community that was accustomed to violence. Just as the FBI was trying to get Lori in custody, her college ex, Steve, who had been the driving force behind the indictment, decided to hold off until there were more people on board. He was scared of the possible repercussions. It was just he and his family trying to get her arrested. Over the next several days, Lori began ramping up the phone calls and also began sending out baked goods and fruit punch pouches, all laced with arsenic. She would end up mailing and hand-delivering her poisonous treats to a few dozen people when all was said and done. She had made many plans for Friday, May 20th, 1988, and one involved picking up two babysitting clients, Patrick and Carl Rush, she had told their mother, Marion, she would love to take them to a carnival that day. She woke up early that morning and began preparations for her day of reckoning. She had made quite a few Rice Krispie treats and purchased a large quantity of fruit punch drinks, and now she set about lacing all of these items with arsenic. She then spent a few hours dropping packages of these items at various homes throughout the area. Many of the places she left the packages were homes of people she barely knew that may have angered her one time years before. She even left some at some frat and sorority houses at Northwestern. Once done with her deliveries, she picked up the two little boys she promised to take to a carnival, but instead she drove to a local elementary school where she went inside and deposited a makeshift weapon in the form of bottles containing various flammable elements and other chemicals. She set fire to the fuse and left the area. Luckily, the device was spotted before it could do any real damage. A teacher put out the fire and summoned firefighters, 
who surveyed the device and wondered if there was some sort of terrorist attack beginning on the school. After she had dropped off the rest of her poisonous packages, she decided to take the boys home, and she explained that the carnival was on a different day. She went inside the house to chat with their mom, Marion. Eventually, Marion headed down to the basement to do laundry, and Lori and the kids joined her. After a few minutes, Lori made an excuse to go upstairs. Once there, she pulled out a small container of gasoline that she had on her and poured it all over the stairs, which she then set on fire. Marion, Patrick, and Carl were now stuck in a basement that was rapidly filling up with smoke. The family panicked, and they remembered that there was one small window high up on the wall. Marion was able to break the window and hoist her kids out. She was then able to stack up some random junk that was sitting around and hoist herself out of the window. They were all safe and mostly okay. Marion had cut herself quite a few times while getting the glass out of the window frame. But other than that, they had survived. But her house was on fire and Lori had completely disappeared. Marion actually had no idea that Lori had set the fire and was worried she may have been trapped inside. When Lori left the burning house, she headed to a small elementary school called Hubbard Woods. Once inside, she approached classroom seven. Seven happened to be one of the many numbers she was obsessed with, so it seemed like a meaningful choice to pick that room. The second grade classroom was full of seven and eight-year-old kids who were excited that day to be learning bike safety. There was also a substitute teacher at the time. When Lori entered the classroom and sat down at a table near the front, the teacher wasn't terribly concerned at first. It wasn't uncommon for parents to drop by and sit in on a lesson. This is even despite the fact that Lori looked very unkempt. The sub just let her stay. After a few minutes, she got up and abruptly left the room. Back in the hallway, she spotted six-year-old Robert Trossman. She grabbed him and dragged him into the bathroom where, without pause, she pulled out one of her guns and shot him in the chest at point-blank range. Luckily, two small children happened to walk in and witness the shooting, and they were able to run off and get a teacher to call paramedics. After Lori exited the bathroom, she went across the hall back to room seven. She walked inside and, with little preface, started shooting at the children, using two different revolvers, a Smith & Wesson and a Beretta. She first shot eight-year-old Mark Taberick in the neck, followed quickly by eight-year-old Nikki Corwin in the back and eight-year-old Peter Monroe in the stomach. She then shot eight-year-old Lindsay Fisher and seven-year-old Catherine Miller, both in the chest. She then left the room and building and ran back out to her car, still carrying two of her guns. She'd actually had a third gun, a 357 Magnum, which she had dumped in the bathroom before starting the shooting spree. Which, if she had decided to use that, more people certainly would have ended up dying. The classroom was now in chaos, and there was blood everywhere, along with several critically wounded children. Several kids had managed to run out of classroom seven during the shooting and made it to the principal's office where they were able to hide out until help arrived. 
Luckily, the call for emergency services had gone out right after the first child was shot, and paramedics that happened to be in the area had heard it and were rushing to the scene. When local police heard the call go out, it seemed unfathomable. There had been very few school shootings ever, and it wasn't something anyone could truly imagine happening, especially not in their idyllic little village. In fact, that day would mark the first murder in the village in over 30 years. The first paramedics made it to the scene within just a few minutes of the initial 911 call. When EMTs came to the main scene of the shooting, they saw several small children laying bloodied on the floor, with various adults and other children hovering around trying to comfort the victims. Miraculously, despite the close proximity of the shootings, all of the children were still hanging on to life, with the exception of one. Eight-year-old Nikki Corwin died of his injuries right on the classroom floor. Law enforcement, reporters, and terrified parents began to flood the school parking lot as the news quickly spread. One of the local detectives had actually just come over from the fire at Marion Rush's house. While talking to Marion about her babysitter, he had begun to make a disturbing connection. He had been involved in investigating several of the incidents involving Lori Dan, and now Marion was telling him that her babysitter was named Lori Porter, but her description and that of her vehicle fit Dan perfectly. The detective had a sinking suspicion, so he got a hold of the local police department and arranged for a mugshot of Lori to be brought to the school. The teacher from Classroom 7 immediately identified her as the shooter. While all of this chaos was occurring, Lori's attempted getaway had fallen apart quickly. While driving through a nearby neighborhood, she had managed to get her car stuck in a ditch. Once on foot, she made her way through the neighborhood, which was extremely affluent, and she ran through some wooded sections and ended up at a large mansion. She rushed inside and found 50-year-old Ruth Andrew and her 20-year-old son, Phil. They saw the guns that she was carrying, and she told them they were now her hostages. She explained that she was running from the police, but claimed it was because she had shot a man who had just raped her. They didn't necessarily believe her whole story, but they had not heard about the school shooting yet, and they didn't want to risk getting on Lori's bad side while she was holding two guns. Young Phil was able to convince Lori to call her mother, but her mother barely reacted to her sobbing that she had done something terrible. When Phil got on the phone with her, Lori's mother told him to, please see that my daughter gets home safely. She was absolutely no help, and Norm wasn't home. Phil was able to get one of the guns away from Lori when she set them down briefly, but she still had one loaded gun left. Around this time, 51-year-old Ray Andrew returned home, not knowing there was anything dangerous going on inside his house. Ray and his son were able to convince Lori to let Ruth leave the house because her young daughters would be home soon and she didn't want them walking in on this scene. Ruth quickly ran to a policeman she saw down the street and told them what was happening. There were already plenty of officers in the neighborhood looking for Lori after having found her ditched vehicle. 
20-year-old Phil soon after convinced Lori to let his dad leave. He didn't really think Lori was going to do anything, but he wanted his dad out of the crossfire if cops were to show up and storm into the house. Within just a few minutes of Ray leaving, Lori abruptly raised her remaining gun, a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson, and shot Phil in the chest from just a few feet away. The bullet went through a lung and just barely missed his heart. He was stunned and managed to stagger away and around the corner. He waited a few minutes expecting Lori to follow and shoot him again, but she had gone upstairs. Phil managed to stumble to the door and escape the house. By this time, police had figured out concretely the identity of the shooter, and they began gathering up family members of Lori and even her ex-husband, hoping that someone could talk her into surrendering. Law enforcement, family members, and several neighbors waited outside of the Andrew house for hours, hoping they could get Lori to peacefully surrender. They didn't want to get into a shootout with her, and they worried about sending police in just in case she had managed to rig up some sort of booby trap. Her parents had arrived and tried to talk to her several times through a bullhorn, but she didn't respond in any way. Finally, police decided they couldn't wait any longer as it was getting quite dark outside. And around 7 p.m., a group of police officers went into the house and began sweeping each room in the massive residence. When they finally reached the upstairs bedroom of the two young Andrew daughters, they found Lori sprawled on the floor, having taken her own life with the gun. While her ex-husband Russell hadn't ended up trying to talk to Lori, he had remained at the scene until the bitter end, needing to know what would happen. He and others who had interacted with her or had been threatened by her had mixed feelings about how her story had ended. While some had truly feared her, Others had felt nothing but pity towards her and wished that she could have received the right treatment. All of the injured children, along with Phil Andrew, had been rushed to the hospital, including Nikki Corwin. The doctors tried their hardest to revive Nikki, but were unable to, and eventually they had to declare the young boy dead. Lindsay Fisher had also been near death when she reached the hospital, having had her lung stomach, and liver punctured by a bullet. The rest of the shooting victims were all in stable condition, though a few were considered serious, one level down from critical. The day after the shooting, law enforcement began to receive calls regarding tainted food and drink. Around 10 people and a dog had ingested Lori's poisonous snacks, but thankfully the arsenic she had used was extremely diluted and no one died as a result of the poisoning. Over the next few days and weeks, the shooting victims were all getting better. Lindsay had been the worst off to survive, and she'd had a couple of surgeries and a couple of total blood transfusions, but she was going to make it. The Monday after the shooting was Nikki Corwin's funeral. Over 1,000 people showed up to pay their respects. Lori was also laid to rest that day in a private service, and she was buried in an unmarked grave. The community heaped love on the Corwin family and praised their son, Nikki, who had been a very popular student 
who was known for being extremely helpful and kind. The family received thousands of condolence cards from around the world. A child being shot at school was such an aberration that complete strangers felt emotionally affected by it. The town ended up renaming a local park for Nicky Corwin, and it was a place that he had often played in life. The following fall, a man with mental health issues who had been inspired by the Lori Dan story ended up going to an elementary school in South Carolina and opening fire, killing two children. A few months later, a young man opened fire on a school in Stockton, California, with an AK-47, killing five. Several of the families of Lori's victims filed civil lawsuits against the Wassermans. They had, after all, allowed Lori to buy the guns and had even lied to law enforcement that she no longer had access to them after Lori had started to get in trouble. The lawsuits were all settled for undisclosed sums. The 30th anniversary of this shooting passed last May, and it's incredible and horrifying to see how much has changed in all of these years. Back then, one student dying in a school shooting was beyond shocking and somewhat of a national tragedy. And in the subsequent years, the number of school shootings has increased dramatically, and the number of victims is often 10 or more. In the United States, these incidents have become so commonplace that often one isn't through grieving over one shooting before another occurs a few days later. Some survivors gave interviews because of the anniversary. Peter Monroe, who had been shot at school, is now 38 and a clinical social worker. He writes a blog about the long road to recovery after getting shot as a child and the different symptoms of PTSD that he's had to deal with over the years. But he is now doing much better in his life and is married with a child and he uses his role as a social worker to help others. Bill Andrew is now 50 years old. Being shot and nearly killed shaped the entire course of his life as well. He became an FBI agent for a couple of decades and was a director on the Illinois Council Against Gun Violence. He now works for the Archdiocese of Chicago as director of violence prevention. He is determined to see these kinds of violent attacks be a thing of the past. Lori Dan had a sad life and she was plagued by mental illness and she let her demons get the best of her. Unfortunately, she lives in a time when mental health wasn't really discussed very openly, definitely nowhere near where it is now. And her family had a hard time believing or admitting that she had serious problems, and they continued to let her have access to guns. They didn't listen to all the people around her that were saying that she needed to get help, better help. If they had, her life might have turned out completely differently. It's a really sad story, but extremely timely for the current gun culture in the United States. It's also such a unique story as one of the tiny percentage of these types of crimes committed by a woman. Not only a woman, but a once beautiful woman from an extremely affluent family. Proof that mental illness just doesn't discriminate. And that if things don't change in the U.S., 
this type of school violence will continue to occur for the foreseeable future. Thank you for listening to this Patreon preview episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you consider becoming a patron of the show. You can click the link in the show notes for more info, and I will see you guys next time.